2: All right, welcome to Last Call. I'm Brian Sullivan. Tonight, it's not just one big story to kick it off. It's a trio of tech headlines that impact your money. Ad- Amazon has suddenly lost a big after-hours gain, a very brief gain, despite a big earnings beat, all thanks to some surprise comments on its earnings call. Snap has crackled, and it's losing investors even more money. I mean, how many times has Snapchat down 20%? It seems like every day. And what is wrong with Intel? The one-shot company posting its biggest quarterly loss ever, even as its CEO just... Keeps getting paid. Let's talk about it all and why you care and bring in platformer editor Casey Newton, Wedbush Securities Managing Director Dan Ives, and CNBC tech reporter Steve Kovac. Uh, Steve, we're going to start with you, I guess, in the, uh, the Amazon earnings.
3: Yeah, it was quite a surprise there. So going into that earnings call, Brian, the stock was up, I don't know, 7 8%, and it just took one comment from the CFO saying... Cloud deceleration has not bottomed out yet. They haven't seen the end of this deceleration in AWS cloud growth. And boy, it went negative. CEO Andy Jassy actually explained a little bit more what's going on here. So here's what he said. In AWS,
2: what we're seeing is enterprises continuing to be cautious in their spending in this uncertain time. Customers are looking for ways to save money however they can right now. They tell us that most of it is cost optimizing versus cost cutting.
3: So look, optimizing. Basically what Amazon is doing for its AWS cloud customers, Brian, is saying, we'll help you save a little money now in order to keep you locked in, stay a paying customer so we don't lose you to Microsoft or Google. We come out of this macroeconomic headwind environment and we'll be just fine. We'll have all those customers still locked up. By the way, Microsoft is doing a similar strategy.
2: You know, and for our viewers who don't know, AWS stands for Amazon Web Services. It's sort of posting that we got a lot of viewers that are not tech or or finance professionals, Dan Ives. I guess here's my issue. I don't really care. Honestly, the Amazon earnings, eh. Amazon has not made a dime for investors in three years. I mean, if you traded it, you probably have. The stock is back to where it was three years ago. Every one of our viewers probably has an Amazon van driving up to their door every single day. And yet the company has done nothing for three
4: years. Why not? Look, they're really spending money like 1980s rock stars. And and the costs were really upside down. E-commerce started to slow. But the golden jewel for them is cloud. And ultimately... They are losing share versus Microsoft. I think, you know, their crosstown rival is in a much different market than Amazon is seeing. And that's really been a big reason why the stock continues to be a treadmill where you look at names like Microsoft that have done the opposite. That's the issue for Jassy as he's been handed the baton from Bezos. All
2: right, Casey, I got to listen. I don't I don't use these. Cloud, I mean, Hotmail was the cloud computing. I mean, if we don't honestly, it was you think about are they all. every company tries to throw cloud computing in their name like it's some new thing. Okay, literally, Hotmail was cloud computing. This has got to, is this just a commodity product at this point, Casey? And that's really the problem. They make it sound fancy, but it's like Dropbox. Who cares? I don't care where I put stuff.
5: Right. Well, the more competitive this market gets, the more commoditized it's starting to feel. You know, we just saw Google's cloud turn its first operating profit this quarter. Other folks are getting better at this game that Amazon really invented. You know, at the same time, with the rise of these AR stuff. Uh, these AI startups, I should say, there's more and more incentive for companies like Amazon to build new kinds of web services that this next generation of startups is going to be able to take advantage of. So that's what I'm looking for from these guys uh, going forward. Yeah, see,
2: Steve. Again, but with on again on Amazon, I guess we care about cloud because that's going to be the long-term value driver, I suppose. Does Amazon ever actually talk about its core business? I mean, they've been notoriously secretive about whether they're making money. I think they've lost money forever on everything except for web services. Do they even bother to go into how much their core business is losing or making these days when you listen to these calls?
3: Yeah, they they talk about it. And look, the e-commerce, the story around e-commerce this quarter, Brian, is CEO Andy Jassy again saying people are trading down. People are looking for deals. And that is where the advertising part of Amazon actually comes in. The advertising... Beat expectations there. Over nine billion dollars in advertising revenue. Now I know that sounds teeny, teeny, tiny compared to what we saw from Google and Meta earlier this week. But at the same time, you've got to keep in mind the power of these Amazon ads because you go to Amazon with the intent to buy something, and they're creating new ways and different uh, monetization tools for those ads to draw people to buy more products. So they they seem very optimistic, at least about the advertising uh, part. You know, kind of lifting yeah. the boat from where uh, we're seeing some softness in, in just the straight-up e-commerce business.
2: Yeah, and by the way, note to Amazon, you're a great company, but I don't need to subscribe and save to a Little League bat.
6: <laughs> which,
3: just toilet paper. Which
2: actually, you yes, I subscribe and save, but not to a baseball bat or cleats. All right, let's talk about Intel, because it posted its biggest quarterly loss to the company's history, which ironically beat estimates. Now, that's some rare good news for one of America's former tech darlings, because overall it's been an ugly ride for Intel investors. The stock is down by half under the current CEO to compare. Rival AMD is down about 7%, fairly modest, but Nvidia, I get it, it's not exactly the same type of chip, is up an impressive 82%. Intel down 52%, AMD down seven, Nvidia up 82. So how is CEO Pat Gelsinger getting paid for this result? Well. $190 million in total compensation for 2021 and 2022 combined. Like most other CEOs, the bulk of that does come from restricted stock awards. They're all doing it. We get it. We should note that Gelsinger is taking a 25% cut to his salary this year. That comes out to $312,000. Should investors still have faith that he is the right man for this job? Dan Ives, to you. And I'm not, I, I, we talk about, the pay and I get it, it's sort of everybody gets the same pay and that's how they defend it. Guys getting paid $170 million and investors are getting destroyed.
4: Well I mean look this has been a debacle stock, especially when you think compare it to AMD Nvidia. They've been in the right lane going 45 miles an hour and you you have AMD Nvidia, they've been going 80 in the left lane. And this has really been a Ted Stryker flying the airplane situation. Investors (laughs) have gotten more and more frustrated because ultimately You know, this is an arms race playing now, and Intel continues to sort of talk the talk, but not walk the walk. And it's been a value trap, and if you looked up disaster in the dictionary, you'd see Intel's ticker.
2: Like the airplane, Ted Stryker. You know, Casey, listen, I don't want to pick on Gelsinger directly because Gelsinger inherited the company that was built by his predecessors. They've gone through CEOs like uh, Amazon's subscribe and save toilet paper in some cases, right? I mean, sort of almost that rapidly. This was... The jewel of Silicon Valley or right. Intel inside meant something. They had a jingle. Everybody knows. Casey, if you could go back, what do you think has happened to this once amazing American company?
5: Well, like many companies before them, they missed a major technological transition. And they in bl- this case, blew it, it was right? the transition. They blew it. They blew it. Uh, you know, they they had an opportunity with the rise of mobile to build uh, the world's best mobile chips, and they they didn't. And if you look at this quarter's earnings, one of the things that's dragging them down is the slowdown in PC sales, which they are still uh, hugely dependent on. So uh, Gelsinger very much paying the price for his prede- predecessor's sins.
2: Yeah, and Steve again, uh, Gelsinger. By the way, he'll be I think he's on closing bell tomorrow. He's welcome on this show anytime. By the way, because it's not his fault. Necessarily. I mean, he, he inherited this company, but when we look across the, the landscape, I mean, Intel is not, and I don't mean this insultingly at all to Intel or its hardworking employees, it's not what it was.
3: Yeah. And look, Brian, you can make an argument that Gelsinger, especially when he first took over, was overly bullish, especially at the beginning of the pandemic when you saw PC sales just explode and everyone was buying stuff they needed to work from home, you know, work remotely. We know we know that story. But he was acting like this was going to continue forever. And it obviously did not. At the same time, he's spending a lot of money trying to become basically TSMC and say, Instead of making our own chips, we can make other chips or other companies make these. They're called foundries, we Mm -hmm. know. And look, that's why that Ohio deal is happening. And he believes, look, we can get Apple back as a customer, for example, by maybe we don't put our chips in Mac computers anymore, but maybe we can at least make the chips for Apple and that they put in their computers. That's a that's a really tall order. It's really hard. You have to be really bullish on the company to believe they can yeah. pull that off, given their history.
2: That's a good, good historical pull by you. Intel used to be in Apple's computers. Then Apple right. developed its own chips. Now they want to go back and make Apple's chips for them. We want Intel, Dan, to succeed because we don't want to be so reliant. That's why the Chips Act was passed. I think Intel's probably getting billions or hundreds of millions or billions of dollars in taxpayer money to help build out these foundries in America. But is there any reason to own Intel
4: stock? Look, I mean, ultimately, Apple, they're beating Intel at their own game. I mean, there's a better chance of me playing the NBA than Intel going back to Apple with open arms. And I think in terms of semis, you'd rather play in NVIDIA or in AMD or any of the other AI plays till they prove it. And for yeah. right now, it's more value trap. That's been the issue.
2: Casey, Dan, Steve, a good combination. Dan, and don't throw yourself – you never know. I mean, you, you never know what could happen. Dream big, my man. I'll dream big. Dream big. Thank you all. All right. Programming alert. On Monday and Tuesday, we are going to be coming to you live from Los Angeles at the Milken Global Conference, one of the most amazing conferences in the world, bringing people together from the world of finance, healthcare, philanthropy, and yes, even some politics. It's open and it's very transparent. And on Monday night, we've got some amazing guests lined up for you, including Chris Ailman and Jace Albee, who combined manage over 500 billion in pension dollars. Big thinker Neil Ferguson, Washington Commander's President Jason Wright. We'll talk to him about the sale there and what they're going to do. I wonder if the commander's name even sticks. And Congresswoman Maxine Waters, as well as some likely surprises. So tune in Monday, because like Randy Newman, we love L.A. In the meantime, here's what happened to your money today. We saw a good day for the macro markets as well. The Dow, the S&P, and the Nasdaq all rising. Dow, one and a half percent Nasdaq. Up 2.5% as well. You have Facebook had a big day. Amazon had a big day. All that subscribe and save toilet paper is paying off. Take a look at your biggest winner and losers today. Investors having a little fun with Hasbro. Best performer, up 14.5%. And investors <clears throat> biting off more than they could chew with Invisalign owner-aligned technology. It fell more than 10%, even though everybody seems to have those Invisalign things in their mouth. All right, let's take a look at futures and see how things are shaping up for tomorrow. No movement there. They're flat, so let's move on. All right, that is next week, Milken. We're still going here, and up next, some new hope for America's fight against obesity. A leading bariatric surgeon is here on whether some of these new drugs like Ozempic and Mount Jaro will really help. Plus, and in an interesting segue, we'll talk about America's most exclusive dinner seat right now. Legendary chef and restaurant owner Mario Carbone will join us on his star-studded restaurant in Miami as the Miami Grand Prix F1 next weekend kicks off. Stick around.
0: People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at AARP.org/money tools.
7: Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 Upstream Methane Intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane.
8: All right, as the
2: snazzy animation says, it is time for tomorrow's news tonight. The stories that you'll be talking about tomorrow morning, if you watch CNBC, that is. Story one, Pinterest reporting better than expected first quarter results in a multi-year strategic ad partnership with Amazon. But it's forecasting of increasing costs this quarter, not sitting well with investors. That stock is down 13% after hours. Pinterest, out, punched, down 13%. Story two, Twitter service alerts will come to a halt or come to halts for new york city subway bloomberg reports that twitter was asking the city's transit agency to pay fifty thousand dollars a month all to access the interface that lets the transit agency offer real-time service updates on twitter to riders new york subway is looking down the tracks at a 600 million dollar funding shortfall this year so why not cut the service that allows people to know if their train's not running makes sense And some bad news for Jenny Craig. The company is telling staffers it is winding down its weight loss centers and warning of mass layoffs. Jenny Craig currently looking for a buyer and is considering a shift toward e-commerce. All right, let's stay on that and actually have a serious conversation about America's obesity epidemic. First and foremost, obviously, it is a health story. It shortens lives. It was also one of the highest risk comorbidities for COVID. But obesity is also a big economic story. The CDC says the annual medical cost of obesity in America is nearly $200 billion. And medical costs for obese adults were $1,861 more on average per person. But there is some hope. Eli Lilly had promising clinical trial results on its diabetes medication. Shares are up just over 3% today. Listen to what the CEO had to say earlier on CNBC.
8: We're launching new, amazing products like terzepatide, and we announced obesity results today in patients who have, uh, people with, who have diabetes, uh, again, setting a new bar for weight loss in people with diabetes.
2: Now, that drug, Trisepetide, is actually called Monjaro. That's the name you would hear. And the reports show the diabetes and obesity medication, Monjaro, did result in weight loss up to 34 pounds. Wow. The group on a placebo only lost seven pounds on average. 34 versus seven, very promising. Now, right now, the drug is currently only FDA-approved as a diabetes medication. But Lilly will try to get approval for Manjaro as a weight loss drug. In the last few months, there have been countless stories about pharmacies running out of such medications because people were taking them to lose weight, FDA approval or not. I'm also sure most of you have heard of the drug Ozempic. But there is one problem here, the cost. These drugs can be very expensive. Joining us now to add some medical expertise to the conversation about obesity and weight loss is Dr. Charles Proctor. He is a practicing bariatric surgeon. He's also the star of the TLC show, Too Large, where he helps obese individuals uh, try to lose weight. Uh, Dr. Proctor, good to have you on the program here. You, you Listen, you deal with the most severe cases as well. How realistic should a population Somebody with a BMI of 35 or 40, right? They're getting around fine. How optimistic should they be about, about these medications?
8: Hey, good evening, Brian. Thanks for having me. Uh, actually very optimistic. These drugs have shown some wonderful results in the clinical trials with regards to weight loss, as you've mentioned, uh, much better than, uh, than medically directed diet and exercise programs even. So, uh, 34 pounds is is nothing to shake a stick at, but we've seen patients lose 30% of their total body weight after about a year on these drugs. So I think it's very exciting for everyone.
2: Is there a risk, and maybe you don't know, I don't want to put you on the spot, that like a lot of things that have come and gone, doctor, you know, you you go on it, you're very optimistic, you lose some weight, and for whatever reason, you have to go off it, and the weight comes right back on.
8: Yeah, that's a real risk, and, and we've seen that happen as well. Um, these are medications, especially for folks with higher body mass indexes, people who have maybe over 100 pounds to lose. Not unusual for them to lose that weight on a medication like this, but if for whatever reason, they have to go off of it for that weight to generally come back over time. Uh, patients are fighting against a set point, what their body wants to weigh versus what they're trying to, to make it weigh. So the biology is always going to win out in the end. So for many patients, it's going to require being on the drug uh, for their lifetime.
2: Now I don't I don't know how Mounjaro works, and I'm not throwing anybody I know under the table, but I was out to dinner recently with a friend who was on Ozempic. And after a couple of bites of food, he had to get up and leave because he felt sick. And as I understand it, Ozempic is not necessarily a quote, weight loss drug, in as much as it can make you feel it can eliminate your ability to want to eat because you don't, you feel discomfort. Is that kind of how this is working, or is there some other medical way that this would actually shave pounds
8: well all of the glp1 agonists work in in a similar manner and they're sort of multi uh multi-pronged when it comes to how they actually work for weight loss uh they will do things like slow gastric emptying to create this feeling of early satiety or fullness after just eating a little bit of food so what your friend witnessed was uh, pretty typical of what somebody on that drug will feel. In fact, we've placed some of our patients who underwent uh, weight, weight loss surgery or gastric reduction surgery some time ago on these medications and who've said that they feel like they did right after surgery, where they have got full very, very quickly. So that is a side effect. It also helps uh, increase insulin production in the body sensitivity to insulin. So it's a drug that affects not only areas in the GI tract, but also yeah. the satiety or fullness centers in the brain.
2: You know, I, I called it... <sighs> an epidemic or a crisis and I know the media overuses those words on a lot of different things. I get it. But when I look at the data and it's not like I'm skinny mini over here, when I look at the data doctor, it's the numbers are stunning. I mean, there's two states, Mississippi and West Virginia, where 51 now more than half of the, the adult population is technically obese, not overweight, but, but obese. This is, I've watched your show. It's very good. By the way, brutal on the joints, knees, hips, lower back, it's causing missed work days. Is it unfair to call this
8: uh, a crisis? I think it's not unfair at all. Uh, we are, you know, obesity is now the number one chronic disease facing our nation. Uh, the CDC puts out a report every year with these uh, terrible numbers on the rise in obesity. The two states you mentioned hit over 50%. It's thought that my own state, the state of Georgia, will probably be in that category by 2030. We're all headed that direction. So, uh, something really needs to be done uh, not only with the medications and surgery but also with the way we approach uh, our our diet
2: yeah and 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 a lot of people out there probably shaking their heads on that it was also after age the number one by far comorbidity for covid and it's like we've passed it on if we talk about it you're shaming somebody i mean I, it's but it's a crisis we have to talk about it dr charles Proctor thank you very much all right, coming up, CNBC's Julia Borson discovers what AI is coming for next.
7: We'll give you an inside look at how artificial intelligence is transforming the entertainment industry.
2: That was Julia. We hope she can change back, Julia. Plus, the battle between Coinbase and the SEC is ramping up. We've got a live report from a huge crypto conference in Texas. Mackenzie Sagallos, I think, is real and is there.
3: Yes, and I've got some
9: fiery sounds from you on U.S. crypto regulation coming up just after the break.
0: People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org All money tools.
2: All right, how cool was that tease from Julia, right? Turning into a robot or maybe Julia? All right, the AI revolution is being felt across a wide range of industries like finance, healthcare, retail, both well, tonight, and media, by the way, Julia Borston will show you the rapidly changing technology, how it's hitting Hollywood.
7: Hollywood production is being transformed by artificial intelligence. Deep Voodoo is a visual effects company that specializes in what they call facial replacement AI. What's a funny face I should make? Like- In about 30 minutes, they scanned my every expression to learn my facial movements. And two weeks later, we put the algorithm to the test with a body double and a live camera. Here we go. not my hair but it's totally my face while visual effects have a long history in hollywood deep voodoo's precision and live render feature have won over celebrities like kendrick lamar who use their technology to wear the faces of other celebrities
6: In a traditional VFX scenario, it would be stuck in post and they wouldn't be able to see it until it was a finished shot. So you
7: can have actors wear the mask of another actor's face while they're shooting the movie rather than having to wait until it's all done to do the face swap.
4: Absolutely, yeah. Julie, you don't have to show up for work anymore. (laughs)
7: Deep Voodoo says it's working with studios to put actors' faces on stunt doubles and even to revive deceased movie stars. How much does your technology threaten people's jobs?
6: This enables people to do their jobs quicker, better and cheaper, but it is a, it's, a, it's a creative tool and it needs to be operated by creative people.
7: But with all of this new technology come new concerns. The Screen Actors Guild telling us, quote, Our goal is to ensure that our members are protected from unauthorized use of their names, voices and likenesses. We intend to expand those protections as AI uses are addressed. On movie sets like this one, AI is not only being used to clone actors' faces and voices, it's also being deployed to do CGI and visual effects faster and easier than ever before. Wonder Dynamics quickly transformed me into these characters. Their AI technology can replace a human actor with a computer-generated figure in hours. It's waving its arms around the way I move my hands when I talk. Actor and company co-founder Ty Sheridan was inspired to improve visual effects after his experience wearing motion capture sensors on Steven Spielberg's Ready Player One.
10: We always wanted to tell stories that were bigger than our Our pockets and that's really kind of what led us to starting this company.
7: Along with his co-founder Nikola Todorovic, Sheridan is hoping to make premium visual effects easier and more affordable. A one-minute scene like this would normally take weeks to render.
2: With our technology we're really hoping to bring it to a day or a couple of hours depending on on what shot it is.
7: So it becomes much faster but also more cost efficient.
2: Exactly and more accessible because all you need is a browser web browser and a camera
7: wonder dynamics says hundreds of thousands of users have signed up to try its platform and productions in the works for netflix are already using it so is it going to eliminate the need for actors
10: absolutely not well, I would never put myself out of work um no i think it's gonna if anything i think it'll create more opportunities for actors to be in these type of films
7: and if it works what used to be science fiction can become an ai reality
2: how cool is that? And by the way, it's appropriate, Ready Player One, read the book. You can watch the movie if you want, but read the book, and maybe that's kind of the vision of where AI and, by the way, AR augmented reality and meta and everything else will ultimately go. All right, speaking of tomorrow, it is Fake Friday. Now, if you tuned in last week, you saw me interview Me, which was an AI-generated audio version of myself. This week, we're going to do things a little bit differently. We're going to play Deepfake Bingo. We're gonna see if we can tell the difference between AI-generated images and just normal photos. with the company develop a deep fake detector? So they will try to detect, I think live on the air, I don't know, what's real and what's fake. Because you think about it, that's critical to this. Because the AI technology, while really cool and neat, can also be put to probably a lot of $10 word nefarious uses. All right, in the meantime, The huge Consensus Crypto Conference underway in Austin, Texas, and a couple of significant developments are generating some serious buzz. For more, let's bring back in CNBC's Mackenzie Sagalos joining us live from Austin, kind of all about the the Coinbase v. the SEC thing, I would imagine.
9: Hey, Brian. So 15,000 people are here for Consensus, which is one of the industry's flagship events of the year. You've got companies like Robinhood, Alphabet, MasterCard, and Binance U.S. all coming out with announcements surrounding Web3 investments and or new product launches in the space. But there are some pretty big headwinds facing the sector. We're still firmly in a bear market. Web3 VC funding has dropped 82% in the last year. And the biggest topic coming up in every single conversation I've had with CEOs, VCs and investors focuses on regulation. Now, this week, as you mentioned, we've seen Coinbase, a centralized crypto exchange, which is considered a blue chip name in the industry, going head to head with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Now, just today, the exchange offered a fiery response to the SEC, which it shared publicly in response to a Wells notice it received from the commission last month. A Wells notice, typically one of the final steps before the SEC formally issues charges. And this just coming days after Coinbase sued the SEC on Monday.
5: Our petition that we filed earlier this week asking uh, the Third Circuit Court of Appeals to order the SEC to respond to our petition. We think getting a simple yes or no answer is uh, entirely reasonable uh, when our question is simply requests uh, nothing more than that. Um, So I I think that we're going to be in court on that for a while.
9: Coinbase has met with the SEC more than 30 times in the last year, and already the CEO has floated the idea of potentially leaving the U.S. altogether if they don't get some regulatory clarity soon, Brian.
2: All right. We also heard from SEC Chair Gary Gensler. He was there today. The SEC still can't make up its mind about crypto. What did he have to say?
9: Okay, so roughly one hour before Coinbase comes out with its response to the SEC, we get this new video message from Chair Gensler posted to Twitter, essentially preempting Coinbase's defense. He said that crypto exchanges must come into compliance and register with the SEC. It, here's more of what he had to say.
3: The law is clear. If you're a securities exchange, clearinghouse, broker, or dealer, you must come into compliance, register with us, and deal with conflicts of interest and disclose important information. For 90 years, these laws have helped protect investors like you.
9: So the SEC obviously trying to make it clear here that they think there's no ambiguity in the rules. Now, the other big regulation question that's come up in a lot of conversations over the last few days here in austin concerns the derivatives market i mean just take ether it's the world's second biggest token and if the sec makes a land grab for jurisdiction over this cryptocurrency what does that mean for the futures market is the cme suddenly in violation of securities laws a lot of publicly traded companies have exposure to crypto solely through derivatives so it's a question on a lot of people's minds here brian
2: yeah, it certainly is. So Mackenzie Segalos at the Consensus Conference in Austin, Texas, and everybody cleared out just for your live hit. It's amazing. They're at the Garage Mahal. If that's <laughs> still open, by the way, check out an outdoor bar in a house. It's fantastic. But don't do that. Mackenzie, thank I'm you.
9: I'm about to go to a barbecue by a poolside.
2: <laughs> Winning. Thanks. All right, we're in a suburban New Jersey office building. All right, coming up, empty office buildings and many commercial real estate developers reaching for the Maylocks, But some see it. As maybe the opportunity of a lifetime. We'll try to take the positive. All right, welcome back. Here's a really interesting story that you probably will not hear anywhere else a growing rift between OPEC and the biggest energy advocacy group in the world. And it's getting a bit nasty, at least as far as these things go. Today, OPEC put out an open letter claiming that the International Energy Agency is going to make oil prices more volatile. Because the group keeps calling for a, quote, halt to new global investments in oil. The IEA is all in on the trillion dollar push toward more electrification, even though its own data shows that global demand for oil could be higher in 10 years than it is now. The IEA director recently said that OPEC had to be, quote, very careful about jacking up oil prices. And now OPEC, which clearly did not like that, responded today by saying, quote, The IEA should be very careful about further undermining oil industry investments because OPEC has warned that any more shortfalls in investments globally could send prices soaring because production goes down. Now, to those not accustomed to the world of geopolitics and this energy stuff, this kind of seemingly polite-ish back and forth is a lot more aggressive than you might think. And in 10 plus years of covering OPEC and going to meetings in Vienna, I've never seen OPEC do this kind of thing. Let's talk more about it with Bob McNally of the Rapid Rapidan Group. Bob, welcome. And, I'm, you know, listen, a lot of our viewers are like, why do I care? And I get it because it just seems kind of like a, you know, like a shoving match. This is real. This was a really rare and interesting thing for OPEC to do today, putting that note out directly going after the IEA, was it not?
6: It is unusual, Brian, you know. And the reason consumers should care about it is because both of these organizations, the IEA looking out for consumers, OPEC looking out for producers, they're looking down the road and they see problems. They see price spikes. They see shortages. And this is part of a blame game to say, look, it wasn't me. So we really should ask ourselves, why are these organizations having this battle? What is it they're seeing and trying to get ahead of and blame the other side for? So it's very important for consumers.
2: Well, answer your own question. I mean, the IEA, Dr. Barol, great guy. I've interviewed him. I've met him many times. He's got his push toward more electrification and renewables. But even the IEA's own data on baseline scenarios shows that oil demand is not going anywhere anytime soon.
6: Yeah, you know, unfortunately, Brian, we've seen a politicization of these oil price forecasts. And let's start with uh, the IEA. The IEA a couple of years ago started saying, "Look, we're going to peak demand. We're getting in electric vehicles so fast, demand for oil is going to collapse." No real evidence for that, and they said it. OPEC said that's irresponsible. You're going to, you're going to hurt investment in new supply. You know, IEA has been saying we don't need new investment in greenfield oil fields because we're going to have peak demand. So I think OPEC has a point when it says you guys are going to make the coming oil boom boomier. You're going to exacerbate shortages in the oil market. And when that happens, it's your fault, IEA, not ours. So I think when it comes to that argument, IEA, uh, excuse me, OPEC is on solid ground. Well, and because, listen, again,
2: you you and I, by the way, because we talk about fossil fuels, we're like the bad guys in some respect. And people think, oh, you're so pro-oil. I'm just looking at the data, all the data, your data, IEA, OPEC, whatever it is. And I don't, there's like this school of thought, Bob, that oil is going away and, you know, like even the president, not to knock Biden, but the president was like, well, we're going to need it for at least another 10 years. There's no estimate anywhere that I've seen that shows oil demand is going to meaningfully drop off in a decade. If not, maybe maybe it'll go down by half in 50 years, best case scenario. But that's still a ton of oil because it's not just about cars. But there's Absolute. this weird narrative out there like, oh, in a couple of years, there won't be any more oil. Oil goes into toothbrushes, Absolutely. roofing material, concrete, Absolutely. tires. Right.
6: You're right. And but instead of honest analysis and uh, sort of sober assessment of policies, we've decided to adopt wishful thinking. Look, I was a Peace Corps volunteer. I lived a zero carbon footprint for two and a half years. I don't need lectures from anybody on this stuff. But look, oil demand's not going to peak in 10 years. The EVs aren't coming fast enough. And the, and the ICE cars, the gasoline cars, aren't getting that efficient that fast. So, again, I think we can have a debate later this year, right? To, to be fair, IEA is saying, wait a minute, in the next couple months to quarters, you, OPEC, by cutting this supply, you're risking higher oil prices. There you can have a more yeah. reasonable debate. The, but when it comes to the longer term, uh, I think OPEC's on stronger grounds. Yeah. Good,
2: well, just, the IEA yesterday, again, and I'm not picking on the IEA because they're good people and I'm friends with a lot of folks there, and they work hard. The IEA yesterday, I think it was, had a big report out on sort of EVs and decarbonization. They said that 30% of cars sold globally in like 10 years, or by 2030, I think it was, would be e- – EVs, but then they only said that would take 5 million barrels a day off of global oil demand. So the, even their own estimates with giant growth in EVs, because EVs are made of plastic, which is made of oil, and they use a lot of tires, even their own estimates show oil demand as being strong. That's where I'm, Abs- con- that's where I'm a little confused.
6: And we all should be. You know, again, starting in 2020, IEA decided to ditch, to cancel, if you will, Forecast showing steady, steadily rising oil demand And adopt this peak demand uh, forecast for 2030 And the industry doesn't believe it OPEC doesn't believe it I don't believe it Not many analysts I know Republican, Democrat, any side of the aisle Really believe it But by telling this to everybody They're discouraging yeah. investment That's it and, f- and making shortages worse If
2: somebody told me something would be gone in 10 years Why would I ever put money right. into that thing? I wouldn't right. Bob McNally I might be gone in 10 years Bob McNally, <laughs> Rapidang <laughs> Group Thank you very much All right, straight ahead. Office buildings are lying empty across America. But could this be a massive opportunity? Stick around. Well, we've been talking a lot lately about problems in many of America's most important financial centers like New York, Chicago and San Francisco. And yes, while many other cities may have higher crime or unemployment rates. These cities, San Fran, Chicago, et cetera, are incredibly important from a macroeconomic angle as well. There are hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars on the line, particularly in commercial real estate losses. We've seen a number of headlines over the past few days, all about facing woes in prime buildings and bad areas, both due to empty desks from work from home and concerns about crime that is keeping people away. Case in point, a story today out about an office building in a prime San Francisco location, that may sell for 80% less than it was valued at just a couple of years ago. But one potential solution is gaining steam, and that is converting old office space into residential multifamily units. According to real estate data firm CBRE, a number of office conversions in the past three years is really taking off. Is there some optimism here? Joining us now is Brown Harris, Steven CEO, Best Friedman and Silverstein Partners CEO Marty Berger. Marty, kicking off with you, your firm is making a one and a half billion dollar investment in converting offices into residential properties. Tell us about it and why it's a good deal.
11: Sure. Thank you. Um, In a market today where office is not as favored and the residential market is so hot, uh, it makes sense to be able to try to buy office buildings that may be obsolete and renovate them or rehab them into um, apartments because there's always a lack of housing in most major cities like New York City where we are based and you can never build enough rental housing in New York City. There's always going to be a demand for it. So with this dynamic, we are trying to pick up office buildings that um, are not doing well from an uh, office perspective because they haven't put the amenities in and they can't compete with their uh, with some of the other buildings that have put amenities in and then we're converting them to residential which is just, you know, being leased very quickly because it's such a hot market and the young people yeah. want to be in the city. Uh, yeah. It's where the old talent is and they're they're leasing space quickly.
2: Well, you know, having been in New York, Chicago and San Francisco in the last year, myself, and I was in Manhattan today, New York City best feels totally different than the other two. I mean, New York City is, is, it's got problems. Okay. I'm not saying it doesn't have problems. There's some weird stuff I saw today, but feels light years ahead And in San Francisco, which is arguably one of the most beautiful cities in the world, for a building like that to go for 80% less, assuming it does, says to me that nobody even wants to convert that building into apartments.
12: Well, I think also, hi, Brian, good to see you. And you too, Marty. I think also San Francisco was really hit because, you know, it was a hub you know, for tech startup. And because so many people after the pandemic realized they could work from home, I think they were really doubly hit by office vacancies. And so I I read that article, too. It was valued at 300 million. Now it's they're trying to sell it for 60. You know, the value has gone down. Interest rates have gone up. There's nobody that wants to be there. There's higher crime. There's all these issues that are going on. New York is not in that situation. I think we're in a better place regarding our office space. And I love the fact that Marty is doing this with some of it, I best I guess it's class C and B office uh space that he's probably converting. I think it's complicated. What, to what, do is it. that,
2: what does that mean? I'm sorry. It sounds like my report card from college, but I don't know what that means from a real <laughs> estate
12: perspective. <laughs> it just means it's not like you know, class C is not is, you know, it's older, it's 20 years plus old. They don't have the amenities. Class A building space. You know, it's beautiful. It's done. It's got outdoor space. It's modern. It's clean. There's amenities. There's probably a shower, a gym and all sorts of fun things. Probably ping pong, Brian, which we love, all that stuff. And so those things are really coveted. And that's what tenants want. And I think, Marty, I don't know what you guys are looking at for space, but I bet it's not class A. Well,
2: Marty, listen, this building in California and by the way, the New York Times did a big take out on it as well today about the macro importance to the economy because of all the debt that's out there. The San Francisco building is next to my favorite restaurant in San Francisco, the Tatech Grill. Okay, legendary, legendary spot, prime location. Would you invest in San Francisco right now? Silverstein Properties.
11: I think it depends on the on the opportunity. It's very difficult to say because on any same block you could have. Two buildings that are completely different from an investment perspective and one might be a great opportunity depending on what you buy it for and depending on what you can convert it for or or keep it as an office building or uh, the next building might be more expensive because that's what the seller wants from his building and so you can make money on any block in any city
2: well let's hope and let's hope we're trying to take this this tough story and make it more optimistic and you guys silverstein and, and everybody have done a great job new york really does feel back a hundred percent san francisco Twenty percent, guys. Thank
12: you. We want to, we Brian. We want to avoid, you know, massive foreclosures. We don't want to have these crisis. We don't want to have a crisis. And I think compromise is yeah. the heart of resolving any of this with borrowers and lenders with time and modification. We want yeah. to work this out.
2: Best. Thank you very much. Appreciate it, Marty and Best. Thank you. All right. Coming up, it's my underground prize most exclusive event. Mario Carbone. We'll tell you about it next. You know what happened 18 years ago today? The world's largest commercial jet, the Airbus A380, completed its maiden flight. So let's go back in time to April 27, 2005. The Airbus A380 took off from an airport in southern France. The giant jet would quickly take to the sky. Since its entry into service, the Airbus A380 has flown more than 800,000 flights, carrying more than 300 million passengers. But last year, Airbus delivered its final A380, marking the end of an era for the super, super jumbo, which was once seen as the future of aviation, but ultimately cast aside by airlines that instead turned to smaller jets. While production of the A380 has come to an end, Airbus officials say the giant jets will be in service and keep flying, quote, for decades to come. All right. Call it the hottest ticket in South Florida, maybe even America. To help kick off Miami's Formula One race next weekend, they're in Azerbaijan this weekend. Famed Italian hotspot Carbone is teaming up with American Express to bring back Carbone Beach. It is one of the hottest tickets in town, as are many of their tables, by the way, for the major food group in New York and other cities. And joining us now are major food group co-founders Mario Carbone and Jeff Zalaznik. appreciate you gentlemen coming on. I know you're very busy. Uh, Jeff, let's start with you. Talk to us about what you guys have done, I think, is really cool because you took some... Just one restaurant, then two restaurants. You kind of made it a family and, an, and a club almost.
1: Uh, our company? Yeah, all the
2: restaurants, major food group. You know, you've got the, you've got the, the it's, you're bringing yeah, things, well, almost like a yeah. membership program in a certain way.
1: Yeah, I mean, we made it one of the largest restaurant companies in the world. Um, I think that, you know, we have a private club called ZZ's that's a, a members club. Uh, And then we have about 50 other restaurants, you know, that span different cuisines and different, uh, you know, parts around the globe. And, you know, Miami is obviously one of the most exciting. And uh, we're thrilled to be able to throw this incredibly special, exclusive event that we do every year, uh, starting last year with American Express uh, when F1 came to Miami. uh, And we're excited to bring it back and do it again and combine our style of hospitality, food, dining and service with you know, some of the greatest musical acts over the last 50 years, performing every night. Um, so it's, it's a week we look forward to, and, and we're going to break out some new tricks this year.
2: Yeah, count, look forward to it. You got Contessa in, in, in Hay Salon in Miami, you're in Vegas, you're in Hong Kong, obviously New York and, and L.A. and a bunch of other cities. Mario, though, this is one of the hardest businesses in the world, all right? And we have Tillman Fortita, my good friend, on the program all the time. There are very few. Eugene Rem at Catch, there another one. Very few that can make it in this industry. 900,000 restaurants in the United States. Is there one thing you guys can point to in your career and say, this is where we really, really nailed it?
10: I think when we all came together. I think when the, when the three of us um, you know, formed, the, formed the beginning of what this company would look like uh, 10, 12 years ago, um, you know, it's, it's some of its parts, all three of us, and then it trickles down to the team, many of which have been with us for a decade now. Um, they 've all bought in, and it's it 's the culture that's that 's permeated through all these projects and all these concepts. Um, I think you can feel the same energy in all the restaurants, regardless of where you are in the world or what style of restaurant you 're eating at
2: yeah it 's kind of i guess is it fair jeff to say it's it 's almost like a lifestyle brand in a certain way. You want to keep people in the major family you 're going even if you go to Doha now you go to riyadh you 've got places there. Talk to us about how you view expansion you want to you want to build and grow into what you said but you also i think want to keep i'm guessing that that feeling of home and that feeling of you know i'm part of you know this club almost
1: yeah i mean listen we we are definitely a lifestyle company um we definitely view it that way i think we you know as mario mentioned we keep our authenticity because these restaurants are authentically us and they really do come from the collaboration that takes place between us our team and the products that come out of that that all have that same sense of soul. And so, at the same time, while we expand, you know, uh, at you know a very rapid pace, you know, we do so while always keeping the integrity of our product intact. So that wherever you go, you get that same feeling and you get that same experience. So I think, you know, to your point, we are we're, we're choosing places where we see that we find exciting, that we think we respond well to what we do, and. We're very fortunate that those are many places around the world.
2: Mario, is, is inflation getting any easier for you guys? No, but the problems that exist for us are the same for everybody
10: else. So I'd like our chances.
2: Yeah, but you don't see them getting getting any better on the on the food side, on on the team member side.
10: No, there's no there's no sign of it subsiding. Um, it's something that you know our job you know that's out of our control, right? Our job is to put out a product that is best in class. If you, if you can continue to do that, then the demand will be there for your customers. Um, worry about the things that you can handle. Um, and, and as long as you do that, you know, we'll be okay.
2: Well, I, I think you're doing more than okay, because every time I worry about the economy, I, go, I was at Dirty French with Bill Cohan and another friend a couple of weeks ago. It was like a two-hour wait. So every time I feel bad, I go to one of your spots. I'm like, the economy is doing just fine. Jeff and Mario. Yeah, have a great Formula One event. Hopefully, we could join you there next year. Have a great time. Congratulations on your success. Thank you. All right, folks. Well, thank you for watching Last Call. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. We'll see you tomorrow, right here on Last Call.
0: Take care.